we've seen this rise in everything being counted in performance marketing. So the pendulum was like swung over on the performance side. Like if we can't count it, we're not doing it pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of have that balance of like, now it's kind of swinging back to be like, yes, we need to track things, but we also need to like create a brand and like do that. And I think you need both. I'm very bullish on on kind of that hybridized approach and sitting right in the middle. And, and the phrase that we use at Right Metric internally is informed intuition. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. There's a popular marketing and branding quote that goes like this. When others zig, you need to zag. My, interpre- my interpretation of this is that in order to stand out, you need to do the opposite of your competition. It's a clever maxim, but is it true? And if so, how do you know what qualifies as a zig versus a zag? My guest today is going to help us to understand how marketers can predict where the puck is going to be by the help of market data that advertisers in the 60s could have only dreamt to have their hands on. My guest today is an experienced brand marketer and the CEO of Right Metric. I'm pleased to welcome Charlie Grinnell to Top of Mind. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. I know I set you up for like something specific about uh, defining what a zig is versus a zag. Have you heard that quote? And do you agree with it? I have not, but I, I have agreed. I do agree with it actually in, in some instances, but I think it, it brings up a hot topic of this kind of idolatry of innovation within marketing. You know, I think from my perspective, and we can get into this in the, in the conversation if you'd like, is you know, I think a lot of marketers, there's so many different shiny objects out there. And a lot of us are drawn to innovation as a business concept of that's what's going to take us further and further and further. And I actually wrote an article on, on Forbes about this, which we could link to in the show notes that, that kind of unpacks this and it uses various business examples over the years, you know, Apple being one of them, you know, Instagram ripping off stories from Snapchat, like being kind of second to market. A lot of that we're kind of seeing in, in marketing today is where there's this idolatry of innovation. But when we look at things historically, it's not actually the best business strategy out there. And there's a great book that I suggest that I read and, and that kind of like illuminated this for me. It was it was called Will and Vision, How How Latecomers Come to Dominate Markets. That's the book. And basically these two guys sat down and looked across, you know, 60 different industries with like thousands of companies. And what they found after doing 10 years of research on this thing is you know, the, the the early bird gets the worm, but often the second mouse gets the cheese. That's kind of the, the, the key takeaway from it. So yeah, that your quote does ring true to me. I think there is space to to zig when others zag, but at the same time, there, there's a lot of data and insight suggesting otherwise. Oh man, marketers are so good at coming up with sayings that are like, <laughs> they might not be true, but they sound too good to be true. I mean, maybe we should spend more time actually doing the work instead of coming up with clever maxims, but... Whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally fair. <laughs> totally fair. So you previously have worked with some really well-known consumer brands uh, like mm-hmm. Red Bull, Arcteryx, and Aritzia, just to name a few. Is there a project that you worked on that stands out in your mind as one of your favorites? 
Absolutely. Actually, I can, I'll talk about my time at, at Red Bull specifically. We came up with a, a video series called Raw 100. And so this is back in, gosh, what year would this have been? 2014. And so in 2014, I was working at Red Bull Canada and basically, you know, every year you're tasked with creating a business plan. So, you know, what are the, what are we going to do for the next upcoming year? And one of the things that we, we were tasked with doing was, can we come up with repeatable, scalable, serialized content formats? So, you know, we're sitting there jamming on ideas and, and uh, this is specifically to action sports. I'm an action sports guy. So I grew up, you know, loving mountain biking, skiing, skateboarding, snowboarding, all that. And so with, when I was working at Red Bull, we were doing a lot of work in that space. And so we had kind of noticed, my, my colleagues and I had kind of noticed that within the action sports video space, a lot of the videos we were seeing tended to have a ton of slow motion, re- really awful dubstep music. And they were really, really long, like these long videos where it was just unnecessary, like a, a mountain biker going through a turn, taking like 30 seconds to go through a turn. And you're like, yeah, okay, it's cool, but like move on. And so... Anyway, we came up with this content format called called Raw 100, and the idea was to pretty much do the opposite of what we were seeing out there, zigging when others were zagging. And and so as we started to kind of like explore into, we, we started joking, like, what if we just did the opposite? Instead of having these long videos with slow motion and music, what if we made like 100 second long videos, no slow motion, no music? That's the thing. And we go with this like raw concept. And so like we kind of had that as a hypothesis. And so what we did was we actually went out and kind of did our own research. So we went to the top action sports websites and looked at all their video, the top performing videos. And what we noticed was we kind of spotted this anomaly that these more raw style videos were performing better. So we ended up kind of using that to validate it. And we said, hey, let's let's go and try this. And so in 2014, we created like five of these videos. And I remember we got one back from, from one of the filmmakers and we, we, we published it distributed it and like it went huge like it did a few million views and we were like huh that's interesting and then we got the next one and it did really well and the next one and it's kind of it's snowballed now so i just checked the the data a little while ago it's still the format is still around it's done over 100 million views on all platforms so like this this concept has done over 100 million views and the other thing is that you know their brand other brands were starting to do their version of a raw 100 so here was this marketing concept or this content format that we came up with attached a name to and then organically other filmmakers and brands were like we're going to do a raw 100 like we're going to do that format and call it that and it kind of almost started to create like take take on a brand of its own and so that's one that i think i'm especially proud of because it literally came out of nothing um it, it obviously generated a ton of views, but I think the, the thing that I'm most proud of it is it's kind of stood the test of time. Like that was back in 2014. And if we think about where the internet was in 2014, where the internet is today, the fact that those are still getting views and that format was still relevant for that period of time was something that I was just really proud of because I think, you know, in the, in the content or internet world, a lot of content is like, Hey, it has its 15 seconds. And then like, it's, it's, it's off your screen. And, never again. So that's, yeah. that's definitely one that, that comes to mind. I like what you mentioned there about the making it timeless, right? Like by not using slow-mo and not using 2014 dubstep, which I remember <laughs> was just like everywhere, you made it timeless and that content continues to, to perform. Yeah. And I think, you know what, it's funny looking back at that, like it seems really smart and strategic now, but that's not what we were thinking of it <laughs> being timeless. So yeah, it was one of those things where we we're just like, let's just do the opposite. And it wasn't even a, and it was, it goes back to that quote, like, zigging when everyone else is zagging. So yeah, it, it, it seemed to work out, but that's definitely like the big one that I'm proud of where I'm like, yeah, we came up with this thing and it did over a hundred million views. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. 
So for those who have never worked at like a global company like Red Bull, mm-hmm. how do these large consumer brands think and strategize their marketing? I know that's a loaded question. That's a, yeah, that's a broad question. A I, think, I think it depends, right? It depends on, on the business. And so I think for me, like full disclosure, I, I dropped out of university. I always knew I wanted to be in marketing, but yeah, I dropped out of university and I ended up never going back. And so as I kind of got into business and started working more and more in marketing, I was fascinated on the mechanics and like the why, like, why are we doing things, right? Like, what is the purpose here? And without getting too kind of like hokey pokey about like Simon Sinek and like, it starts with why, like, yeah, of course it starts with why in, in, but I think, you know, from my perspective, when thinking about how these, these big brands strategize, it kind of comes down to, to three things objectives, strategy, tactics, right? So, you know, and how those three things are linked together. So from the top down, you need to have objectives or goals. Where where are you trying to go? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to grow your sales? Are you trying to launch a new product? Are you trying to grow, you know, your brand in a new space? Like, what is it, right? So I think that's like, first and foremost, without like objectives and having that North Star, as a marketer, you're kind of (laughs) hooped because, you need to build out your strategy and your tactics mm-hmm. to ladder up to that objective. So, you know, I think I've been very fortunate in that the brands that I've been able to work with have always had really clear objectives and goals. And then it's, you know, my responsibility and my colleagues' responsibility who I work with to come up with, okay, what are the strategic choices that we're going to make? And what are the tactical elements associated with each of those choices that are linked, contextually linked or causally linked back to Right. Those those strategies and and those objectives. And so I think having that like framework in my mind is something that I was able to to learn pretty early on. And it was kind of more out of necessity, just like, hey, I dropped out of university. How does this stuff work? Because now I'm working <laughs> in it and like I need to know. And this idea of like objective strategy tactic, that framework and, and the linkages between them is something that that I've found to be very, very useful. And and it's the way that that some of the world's best brands plan plan their marketing. Can you recall what the the objective might have been for the Raw 100? Yeah, well, I mean, Raw 100, I, uh, back then it was create a content format that was repeatable, serialized, and and broad enough because Red Bull was in so many different, you know, playgrounds or networks. So would that be so the strategy, sorry, or the objective? That, that would kind of be, that would be the objective. So so for them, it was like the the, the high level objective was how are we creating formats that, that retain people? So get more people to redbull.com, get more people to follow us on social and create something that makes them want to come back and continue to consume our content. So that, that would have been the objective. serialized. That, yeah. And so fact. that was like, if we think about that as an example, that's the high level objective the strategy was, okay, let's create a serialized video format. The yeah. tactic was like, we're going to call it Raw 100. Gotcha. It's going to be distributed on these channels. It's 100 seconds long. And so you can see that like the tactical piece layers all the way up to contribute to that objective, right? right. And so you could take that in you know, e-commerce. I think about, you know, I worked at Aritzia. How are we increasing you know, dress sales in this part of the year? in this area. Okay. Well, some of the tactics we could use, we could run a social media contest around that. We could, you know, do paid ads to that type targeting those types of consumers with those products. And like, basically what you're trying to do is show that the nitty gritty things that you're doing day to day are laddering up and contributing to where the business is trying to go at the macro level. Every, every company does it differently. You could talk about how Nike is structured, how Red Bull's structured, how, you know, Lululemon structured, like all, every, every company has it, it differently. So there's really two models, centralized or decentralized. So centralized would be, hey, this is the, at the headquarters, 
we're giving high level directive of like, here's what we're trying to do. And then maybe each country regionalizes that, right? So they take that objective and they're like, yeah, this is how this comes to life in our region. And then the flip side of that, a, you know, a, a decentralized model would be like, we are, I don't know, I'll just use a company. We are Lululemon say, you know, okay, Lululemon in Canada versus Lululemon in the US versus Lululemon in this country, they might have, yeah, they might have high level objectives, but they don't necessarily have to follow that. And so I think like there are those two models and and those companies that I listed, like those aren't necessarily their models. It's just more like if you think about big orgs, it it just depends on on how they're structured and and how they do things. So the the trend recently has been... um direct to consumer brands kind of swallowing up market market opportunities because for a bunch of reasons they can move faster they can raise a lot of money because they're going after very specific targeted niches and then they can use kind of these acquisition channels like paid and social to really capture the market share of like very nascent and small opportunities that a larger brand might not be able to move the ship fast enough to kind mm-hmm. of capture new opportunities. So kind of the this idea of like small brands just being able to, 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 to take advantage of like cool opportunities as they come up. How are some of these larger brands thinking about kind of their positioning as more and more direct-to-consumer brands can just get started with very little kind of infrastructure or brand necessary? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. And again, you know, I think every brand has a has a different take on this. From what I've seen, this kind of rise of DTC has kind of forced those big brands to to get agile or get gone, I guess is what I would say is like, you know, when 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 little little kind of inco- challengers are coming in like that and creating or providing a customer with an experience you know, that becomes the normal. And, and, and when I, it happens with little brands, it happens with big brands. So like the one, the one example I'll give is like, think about the consumer expectation that a company like Amazon has set, right? Free shipping, sometimes same day, right? Like that side of thing, like that, that experience as a customer, we now expect across when we buy something on the internet. And so whether it's a little brand doing that or a big brand doing that, it comes down to that experience. And so I think that what we've seen with, with the pandemic and, and kind of this rapid acceleration of, of digital across the board, e-commerce, whatever you want to call it, I think we're, we're seeing that whether brands were in, in their phase of digital transformation or thought they were digitally savvy, it's completely different, right? Like they thought that like, there might've been a brand brat back in March of 2020 who thought that they were really digitally savvy and had it all figured out. And now they might be completely different because they've had to, to dive deeper and our level of um, sophistic, the level of sophistication needed has increased. Consumer expectations have increased. And so, yeah, it's forced them to, to kind of adapt or die or adapt or lose significant, you know, market share or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, I think it's just been this, this rapid acceleration and, and uh, yeah, it, it, I would say it's not necessarily just little brands who are doing it. There are big companies who are who are changing that as well. Yeah, this this might be a, a specific question that is kind of the million dollar question, but I'd like to hear mm-hmm. your kind of opinion on what what can you do. So it doesn't matter what size you are, but like what can you do to hedge these risks associated with someone else kind of encroaching? Are there any moats that you think are especially useful, uh, like right now and moving forward? So I think there's two things that come to mind, and it's a really great question. Two things that come to mind for me. The first one is the analogy that I'll use is 
when you, when a building is now built, <clears throat> excuse me, when a building's built and an earthquake happens, it can sway and and move so that it doesn't come crumbling down. How are you doing that with your business? How are you making your business Yes, agile, kind of what I just said, but also flexible and able to withstand an earthquake. So whether that means how your team's structured, whether that means how you run your finances, cash on hand, how you budget things, don't necessarily lock your budgets into things that might change. So I think that that flexibility is is really key. The agility one I kind of touched on, I think that goes hand in hand with flexibility. You know, if you have access to move your budgets around or have your team set up in a certain way, that is going to allow you to change. So I think that's that's really the first one that that would come to mind and and it, it, it's not sexy like i don't think it's like the sexy thing because it's very much like operational behind the scenes but like it's not sexy but you need to do it so that's the first one the second one i think would be in, in terms of a moat is how can you kind of use these like rented platforms so you know yes there are large groups of people on facebook instagram or whatever and how can you start to build your own 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 owned audience right mm-hmm. so you know if some if you're if you're killing it on instagram how are you taking that attention on instagram and making sure people sign up to your email list where you have true ownership of that how are you bringing people to your site how are you getting them to you know sign up for a loyalty program something like that is use these platforms to help you grow your business and tap into them and and you know it's a balance right you do need those types of like third party platforms but in terms of like you should be striving to build your your own kind of platform like i said whether it's a, a loyalty platform your website like gated content like there's so many different ways that you can structure that and i think by doing those two things having that flexibility and agility and then focusing on using those channels to slowly kind of bring people closer to you those are two things that that come to mind for me Mm. And then you get to own the whole consumer relation rather than making it kind of a third party. Like, like you said, you're, you're kind of paying your drug dealer to get access to these people. Totally. And then if they want to up the prices <laughs> or stop serving them, the, the ads you like to show them, owning that audience and the relationship is not just like a distribution strategy, yeah. but it also allows you to kind of start setting expectations around delivery times and For how sure. you message them and, and all the whole, the whole funnel really. Well, yeah, the thing that I think comes to mind is like back in the day when it was like, remember, you'd see like, hey, like my Facebook page. And everyone was all about like, how many likes do you have on your Facebook page? And then all of a sudden, like organic reach fell off a cliff. And it's like, wait a second, for the last few years, I've been telling people to like my Facebook page. And now when I post something of the 100,000 people who like my page, only 2% of those 100,000 are seeing it. Oh, well, if you want to reach those people, you can pay to reach those people. And you were like, wait, what? Like, you know, so like, yeah, having that level of control and how are you bringing your customers into an environment or an ecosystem that you can control. But I think there is, there is definitely, uh, there's, there's both an art and a science to it. Like, how are you creating an experience like that of bringing people into your ecosystem that they don't feel is spammy or, you know, abusive or whatever you want to call it, right? Like there has to be a good reason as to, okay, yeah, I follow you on Instagram. Maybe I've purchased something from you before why should I follow your email newsletter? Like, why should I subscribe? Or you want me to install an app? Man, we're talking, that's some valuable real estate. You want an app on my phone? Like, why should I install the app? And what do I get for that? So I think there, there's all those other questions that that kind of unearth themselves as you as you start to go down that. But yeah, it's it's a long-term strategy that that brands need to be thinking about. So more recently, you've taken a real deep dive into the world of kind of market data and understanding because a lot of these things we talked about, yes, they're very kind of wishy-washy and like we can talk about all these strategies yeah. and give examples like using the biggest Fortune 50 companies in the world. 
but having consumer data, both in how like internal data, knowing how your operations work, you touched on that, but then also yeah. being able to understand outside data of like yeah. where these trends are moving and how you can be ahead of it. What got you interested in kind of pursuing the data side of marketing? Yeah. And where did that come from? Yeah, really good question. So I can kind of go back to the beginning. So the way I got into marketing was actually video production, believe it or not. So I was making video content and working on the brand side. And I was making, you know, product videos, brand videos, athlete videos, event recap videos. And, you know, when you're slaving away over a video, you want, you want to make sure that people see it. And yeah. so at the time I was making these videos and I was like, oh, like, I just want to, I, I want to learn the distribution. So that if I'm going to go through the, the time and effort of concepting, shooting, editing, color grading, doing motion graphics, and then like putting that on the internet, people better see it. And so once I kind of realized there were these two sides of like production and distribution, that's kind of what led me into wanting to get more into the marketing thing. So that was like phase one. So I was like, okay, I need to learn more about marketing. How are things shared? Blah, 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 blah. Like what are the mechanics? You know, what are best practices for posting things? What can I learn from an editing perspective to make things better for mobile like discovery? How can I get thumbs to stop scrolling? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So once I kind of had a good understanding of that, you know, you'd release a video, you do all that stuff and then you go, was this good or not? How did this do? And that was kind of where like the data piece started for me was like, what is good? <laughs> and is this successful? And so, yeah, I think, you know, the way that I look at, at data, I think like first and foremost, I am the, I, I got like a C minus in math in high school. Like I am not a math guy to anybody listening out there. Like, no, it was bad. <laughs> and I think a lot of people equate like data to math. Whereas like, when I think about data in marketing, it's really just the quantification of someone behaving a certain way, someone taking an action or doing something. So when you think about it like that, I don't know, at least in my brain, that makes a lot of sense. And so I was going, okay, if I'm making this video and I want, I'm wanting to get it in front of people, what data points can I use to understand what people are doing in the way that they watch this video? So how long are they watching for? Are they liking it? Are they sharing it? Are they commenting on it? all the different things? And uh, so those are, those are kind of the, that was kind of like the gateway into like the analytics side of things. And then, yeah, as you know, as I kind of started to learn more and more about strategy and getting more involved in strategy, I just realized that there was a need to, to learn this stuff because, you know, without, without the numbers behind you, you're kind of just guessing, right. And mm -hmm. there's this, there's this phrase I heard, I don't know whose original quote it was, but I heard it from, from a friend of mine and they say, without data, you're guessing. And if you're guessing, you're either lucky or you're wrong. And, and then the kind of add on to that and is, is that eventually everyone's luck runs out. And so it's true. So I think like that's kind of what, what got me into it. I think now that said, what I want to balance all that out with is like, I am a big believer in that the best marketing is a balance between art and science. And so by no means am I sitting over here saying like data only, I don't care about your intuition. I don't care about your gut feeling. I don't care about your personal experience. Like the data guides the way. I think the best marketing is is art for the sake of commerce, commerce being the keyword. And it's a really good balance of brand and performance. You have to balance both. And I think what we've seen in marketing over the last few years with more and more digital tools becoming available, we've seen this rise in everything being counted in performance marketing. So the pendulum was like swung over on the performance side. Like if we can't count it, we're not doing it pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of have that balance of like, now it's kind of swinging back to be like, Yes, we need to track things, but we also need to like create a brand and like do that. And I think you need both. I'm very bullish on on kind of that hybridized approach and sitting right in the middle. And, and the phrase that we use at Right Metric internally is informed intuition. How can we use insights 
for, that are data backed to help inform creativity and and help you know enrich that kind of gut instinct or gut feeling that you know someone working at a brand might have to help them kind of create something it's the same thing in that raw 100 example we had a pretty good idea but unless we went away and looked we wouldn't have really been able to go oh wow there actually is an opportunity here and we mm. feel good about it but also there is data that shows that amazing let's try it Mm, yeah, 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 that pendulum, the back and forth between like brand marketing and now performance marketing um, is 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 tangible. Like you can see totally. it in just job postings on on totally. marketing job boards. It's like everything, everyone's hiring performance and growth marketers right now because it's they want to get their data in place, knowing yeah. that if they don't have the right metrics and they don't have the right kind of conversion, they're just kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Exactly. Right. Because I think I think that's the thing. Like if I love this definition, marketing is art for the sake of commerce, commerce being the key word. Like that's that's really what it is. It's like at the end of the day, we are a business and we are trying to make money. And that might piss off some people who work in marketing right now. But like that's the name of the game for if you're if you're a creative working in marketing. And like I was there. I was a creative person sitting in marketing. Yeah. Like if, if I if you want to go make an art project, the art gallery is right down the street. Go for it. But like to sit to have a to have a role in that organization at the end of the day you're most likely in a for-profit entity where they're looking to do to to ha- to do to spend all this money have you on the payroll for a reason so of the, of of your clients who who use your data sources and and mm-hmm. the the product that you they're helping them with without kind of giving them giving out their secret sauce or the names like what how are they using this informed intuition on a day-to-day basis to to create like marketing that really moves the needle? Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's a really good question, and, and there there are a ton of different use cases. So the first thing I'll kind of talk about maybe is is why or or how we kind of came to the idea of building the Insight Library, which is our, our main product. And so you know, one of the things that that we've noticed over the past kind of decade is the the main technology story you could say has been business people, specifically marketers, using data to make decisions, right? Like that's kind of been like the last 10 years is like data-driven decision-making. You read the headlines, data is the new oil, all that sort of thing. I think the other disclaimer I'll kind of put out there is we're an insights company. So we we have access to data sets, but we have a team of researchers who, who use data sets to create data-backed case studies and, and pull out insights. And those insights are housed within a library. So we, we interact with data every day, but we are primarily not a data company. So I'll kind of put that out there. But Basically, if the last decade has been using using data to make decisions, using your own data, um, that's great. But a lot of it has been using your own data, which is only really half the picture, right? So I'll give an example. When I was at Aritzia, I could see all of our data. I knew stuff related to our website, our social, our email, all the different marketing channels. But okay, let's say for the sake of example, we grew our traffic 20% over last month. Is that good or not? I don't know. What if the category grew 150% and we only grew 20? All of a sudden, 20% growth isn't that great, maybe. You know, or you know, what is Zara or J. Crew or Club Monaco? What are those brands doing? And so that was kind of this hypothesis that we were like, huh, we feel like as marketers, we're kind of covering one eye. And if we could just uncover that other eye, have clear visibility into what's happening in our four walls and have clear visibility into what's happening outside of our four walls both with our direct competitors or, or competitors or competitive set and other inspirational leaders, maybe in an adjacent industry or maybe in a completely different industry, there are probably things that we could learn from that. And we as strategists would be better armed because we have a more complete picture of what's happening. 
So that was kind of the hypothesis of like where we started. And so, yeah, so how, how our customers use our research, it, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some of it is for benchmarking, right? Seeing what, what direct competitors are doing well and, and are there things that they could learn and kind of steal tactically or steal strategically. It could be innovation. So, hey, wow, this, this brand just did this crazy campaign and I've always looked up to them. We could do something similar. They're in a completely different industry, but we could, you know, we could take, that's what they did for their product. What if we did that? And like pull like use it for inspiration. Another one can be just for best practices, right? So, you know, digital, there's so many different areas of digital that require such deep subject matter expertise. And by being able to kind of tactically unpack everything and see step-by-step exactly what best in class looks like, that's really valuable. You can use that to teach. You can use that to just get better at your craft. So, so yeah, I think the use cases definitely vary, but a lot of it just comes down to that context. And there's a quote that we love. It's from this woman named Marissa Thalberg. She's the CMO at Lowe's. And she says, you know, when it comes to insights, you need to look within your industry for information and outside of your industry for inspiration. And that's kind of like something that we talk about a lot is like, you know, you need these insights for both. You need information and you need inspiration. And again, it just goes back to as a strategist, how are you arming yourself with as much information or, or inspiration as possible to be able to make the best decision for your business? Mm, I love that that quote of having those benchmarks internally being information. Like, what do we? How do we? How much yeah. do we need to grow without just setting these arbitrary goals? And then yeah. the inspiration of like, okay, then how can we do that without looking exactly like our competitors? Because you yeah. can get inspiration from anywhere. And I love the idea totally. of like, for, like one that I'm really riffing on right now is how, how much better musicians are at content marketing than content marketers yep. are. Like they will yep. tease their new album months in advance. They'll live stream them in the recording session. They'll put together clips of them recording the music video weeks before. Then the week of they'll like leak it to their audience or leak it to the PR, like a magazine or something like that. And then they push it for a week and then they release remixes and acoustic versions and collaborations and like all these things just with the outcome of you listening to their song three times on Spotify. Like they're putting that much effort per song. Yeah. And so that's like the perfect example to me of like how much work content marketers could be doing. Mm-hmm. But unless you have information and benchmarks and you just say, well, let's just get a TikTok going because we get, we want an extra 10,000 clicks this week. Like that doesn't mean anything unless you have mm-hmm. the, the information for benchmarking and then inspiration elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that I think about is it can, those our insights can act as both a compass and a map a compass in at a high level, what areas of marketing are you focusing on? Mm -hmm. And then a map is like, here's the turn by turn directions of us deconstructing exactly what that best in class thing was that we backed with data to show that it was actually best in class. And and yeah, those two pieces are really valuable for whether you're a CMO or whether you're a digital marketing specialist, both of those people can find a ton of value from that. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's something that, that we think is just the surface is only just being scratched. I think this concept of like looking outside your four walls, I've been in a lot of meetings where, you know, we'll show something and, and people will just go, wow, you can see that. And then you go, yeah. And then they go, oh, hmm. and they're kind of sitting there pondering thinking. And I usually go, well, yeah, now that you know that you can see that, doesn't that change your whole approach of strategy? Right, what, like what kind of metric specifically are uh, whether the most, you're looking like, at competitors, competitors' web traffic, what competitors are spending on ads, where they're spending on ads, what type of ads they're running, what what's their ads budget, how do they get traffic to their website, 
What kind of emails are they sending? What's the, how is that content in the email designed? Are they running paid search? Yes or no? Like literally it's endless, right? And that's kind of what we pride ourselves on is we've gone out and assembled a data stack that gives us holistic visibility into the digital ecosystem. And so we can actually see if we look at a brand, when we're looking at a brand's activities from a marketing perspective, we can see all of it. So yeah, they're spending ads. Okay, did that, did that result in increased traffic? And did that traffic, in, did, did they see an increase in email signups? And you can start to kind of quantify it. So when we're saying, hey, this is how this brand did this, and we think it did really, here's, here's how it did really well. It's not, I, Charlie, believe that it's doing very well. Mm-hmm. It's data backed. It's like, no, they did this and it really works. And so I think that's the difference because I think we see a lot of marketing content out there where it's like, here are the best practices. And it's like, I think this. And it's like, no, no, let's get rid of the thinking part. Let's just see like what actually performed, what actually moved the needle. So yeah, that's kind of how, how we approach things. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. <laughs> so if you were starting a brand from scratch, you you lost Oof. your whole audience, you lost all, all, your, all your money, but you had all the knowledge that you start, currently still have. First question is like, what cat, what category would you choose? You can keep it high level. And then the second question is, what would be your like must have data that you would start measuring from day one so that you could then understand the health of your business? Whoa. So I think this will probably be surprising, but I like fantasize about having a business that isn't like that digital or that technical. So, and maybe this is something that I saw on Twitter, like sweaty startup or on the hustle or something is like, I would love to buy a landscaping company or like a laundromat or start one of those types of businesses that is traditionally like pretty old or outdated and apply the digital knowledge that I have now. So, you know, a laundromat, okay, how can we make it so that there's a loyalty app? You know that if people are coming to the laundromat, they're coming back and forth. So how are we building a loyalty app and incentivizing them to come more often and spend more often? And how can we learn what else would be useful? If you have a laundromat and you have all your washing machines and your dryers, there's probably other things that we could put in there that could be useful, that could be profit centers for us. I don't know. Obviously like the low hanging fruit wouldn't be like, yeah, you put a vending machine in there. Duh. But like there are other things probably that we could learn from our customers and watching what they do and asking them and, you know, seeing what do you do when you come to the laundromat, like you have time to kill, you have an hour to kill. What else are you doing? Are you running to get groceries? Like, is there things that we could just build in here that I can learn from you? And then I can incentivize you digitally to do that or other things that are super simple where it's like, you know, I used to have to just put coins in. Could you make it so that each washer or dryer takes Apple Pay or Android Pay or tap with your credit card, just like modernizing businesses like that. So I think that's probably, and I think about the same thing with landscaping. How do you do it so that it's it's on a subscription and maybe you incentivize people and maybe you, you do videos from certain things. Hey, we just came out with this new thing. If you want it on your next thing, just click here and it'll automatically be added to your account and we'll do it to your yard. Like just mm-hmm. things like that. It's not, again, not sexy, but it's taking the principles that we see from, you know, e-commerce and, and very digitally savvy brands and applying them to other other industries and other businesses. So that's, I think, like how I would think about something today. I always talk about with my co-founder that I'm like, oh, I just want to own like a power washing business or like a landscaping business or a laundromat. And he's like, yeah. you're a crazy person. Dude. A dog washing <laughs> uh, place. Like something like that. So, so that's kind of the first part. I think the second part in terms of like specific metrics and what I want to know, that would be dependent on like, what do I build, right? So like, let's say I build a mobile app. Okay, well, I'm going to be looking at obviously app installs. I'm going to want to reward people into that. So I'm looking at like how much does it cost 
to get someone to install the app? How often are they using the app? How can I incentivize them to use the app more, right? Like just things like that. Are they subscribed to our email list, right? So, so I, I think without building out too much further, like you can't really build out the things that you're going to count until you kind of figure out what are the things that you're going to build? So yeah, that's that's how I would think about that though. Maybe one day I'll, I'll be able to do that. That'd be really fun. <laughs> I mean, you've got the, just just putting you on the spot there, you seem to have it pretty well thought out. So. <laughs> that was actually, like I've talked about Laundromat, but when, when I was like, oh, okay, how would I digitize this? And our conversation just kind of prompted all that. So thank you for getting <laughs> that out of me. Now that I've said it, I'm like, huh, maybe I should do that. I love it. I love it. My friends used to live above a laundromat and it was oh. the warmest apartment ever because I all the it. all the exhausts and vents were like running under their floorboards. It was so hot. Yeah, well, I time. hope it smells good. Like I love the smell of like, you know, oh, yeah. dryer. Like the place would smell awesome too. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Spring breeze <laughs> all year long. Yeah, exactly. Awesome, Charlie. Last question for you here. Yeah. You 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 have your pulse on a bunch of industries all around, all like global, but also local and tons of different verticals. Mm-hmm. What are some trends that you're like really excited about that you're kind of keeping an eye on both maybe, maybe for when you launch your laundromat or just like in general stuff that gets you excited? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good question. I think the the things that probably come to mind that that I'm keeping a close eye on, I think the big one that everyone's talking about is the rollout of iOS 14 and, and the whole cookie thing. So that's fundamentally changing the way that, that, advertisers are approaching things. I think a lot of people, my take on that is a lot of people are like, oh, like we're screwed and like, we're not going to be able to do this. And I think the way that I was interpreting that was like, just because there's a change about tracking doesn't mean that people still aren't spending time in the same places. Right. And so I had people being like, oh, okay. Like now that this is, now this is happening, like what, what do we do? And the, you know, I, I'm really, I love this quote from Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, fish where the fish are. The fish are still in the same ponds, everybody. Like, you know, it's just now you're not allowed to use the super fancy, like spiffy rod with like the 10 hooks. You can only use one hook. And so, you know, they're still there. So I think we haven't seen this like massive migration of attention. So I think it's just going to force people to, um, you know, it's going to separate kind of the good from the great. So that's one that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly watching. And our team is actually working on uh, a bunch of research around that as well, mm-hmm. seeing what are the shifts that we've seen in terms of, you know, things like ad creative, our budget shifting, all that sort of stuff. And so we'll be releasing some research on that in, in the future here. I think the other one it, that, that, and this is probably no surprise, is like TikTok is here to stay. I think when TikTok first came out, everyone was like, oh, this is like the best thing since sliced bread. I was definitely one of the skeptics because I, you know, if we think about like Facebook and Google on the top of the jungle gym and a brand, a, another kind of incumbent trying to climb the jungle gym, they pretty much just boot you in the face and you fall to the ground. And so I was like, huh, it's interesting to see that TikTok has been able to kind of climb to the top of the jungle gym alongside them and and sustain there. And so I think why I'm excited about it is it obviously got popular with a specific subset of people or the specific content type, but as that platform matures, as the people who use it mature, I think there's going to be more and more tools available for brands to plug in e-commerce to, you know, do a, it'll be a much more flexible marketing tool. And so I think that's really, really exciting because arguably in the last five years, there hasn't really been that like, yeah, Snapchat kind of had their thing, but then Instagram ripped off stories and Snapchat's still doing fine. Like, you know, they're out there, they're doing their thing, but there hasn't really been one that's kind of like shot to the level of Facebook, Google style YouTube size like TikTok. So I think that's something that's that's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it opens up like a, t- a totally different creative style, right? Like totally. Facebook ads are very 
kind of, there's a formula now that works for Facebook ads. Mm-hmm. There's a formula that works for Google search. Yeah. TikTok is actually very, like those, those two examples I just gave are very performance based whereas yeah. tiktok is like super brand based so it'll be mm-hmm. interesting as that pendulum kind of swings back like you're yeah and i think also to your point though i think we could start to see some of that transferring so that content style of tiktok how many times you go on instagram and it's just a video ripped off of tiktok yeah. spat out onto instagram right and then all of a sudden you put some money behind that and you get that in front of some people right so so yeah you're starting to see this transferring of of these formats across platforms and yeah i think it's it's interesting. It's exciting because like I said, we haven't really had, to my point, we haven't really had true innovation that's stuck in the last like yeah, five, six, yeah. seven years. Like I'm just trying to think back like to, to something else that it was like, oh yeah, this is now a thing that like you legitimately need to like dedicate a serious amount of time to and, and think about. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. Right on, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and explaining where can people go to find more examples of these insights that you're pulling? Yeah, so really good question. So we're actually about to launch a free resource at the end of the month. Basically, we have our insights library, a a paid membership up until this point. In the last week of June, we're launching uh, a free version. So anybody can go there. We have a ton of content sitting there across industries, across different marketing channels. So the best way to get notified is just go to our website, rightmetric.co, not .com, rightmetric.co. And at the very top, you can subscribe to our newsletter. As soon as it's live, we'll be kind of sending out an email to everybody saying, hey, it's live you can create your free. And yeah, to start with, there will be dozens and dozens of free case studies for, for marketers to look at. In terms of where to find me, I'm I'm mostly focused on Twitter and LinkedIn. So on Twitter, I'm at Charlie Grinnell, G-R-I-N-N-E-L-L. And on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, I'm posting there constantly. So those are the two best places to, to get a hold of me. Awesome, Charlie. Thanks so much for sharing. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.